You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. This morning we are going to be in Acts chapter 10. That's going to be on page 918 in the black hardback Bibles that Matt mentioned uh, that are underneath your seats. Uh, So if you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab one of those. Turn to page 918. I've always wanted to preach the Bacon Sermon, um, which this is. We get to talk about the the way in which uh, God has grafted in the Gentiles into the family of God. But um, this morning, we're not going to focus in on the Bacon piece of that, but we will... Uh, We will be speaking about missional reluctance this morning. Missional reluctance. Has anyone here been reluctant to do something that they knew deep down was actually good for them? I mean, let's do a quick check. Um, It's April. How many of your New Year's resolutions have been kept? Anyone? Anyone still still going? No? Okay. Well, uh, for the rest of us underachievers, we'll get them next year. Um, change is hard. Change is hard. Change is uh, difficult. It makes us uncomfortable. Most people don't like change because ultimately, like I said, change itself is difficult. It involves both newness and the realization that what you have been doing wasn't working. It wasn't, wasn't making things happen or it needs to stop. Uh, you see, a lot of times um, we run from discomfort. We don't like to be uncomfortable, do we? We, we don't like to, to be challenged. We, we love comfort. We love leisure. We don't like to be called to do things that make us uncomfortable. But ultimately, we all need to experience some kind of change. I have yet to meet the person who wishes that they were back in their middle school body. That's a change that needed to happen, and that's a good change. If you're in middle school, hope is coming, I promise you. And we're grateful for those changes. Uh, Even if it's just a change to your schedule, a diet, a routine, you know that it was not easy to do, but ultimately it would be good for you. We may be reluctant to change, but there's something deep down inside of us that tells us that change can be good. If you've been tracking with us in our sermon series here on the book of Acts, you've seen that the early church has experienced some changes. Some things uh, have changed, and they've changed with, honestly, with some reluctance. Today's passage is no different. But in today's passage, we will see a great shift in the mission of God, but it too is met with some reluctance. So let's look now uh, to this book that we love, Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? 
And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, and sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop at about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending down, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came again to him the second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out and asked whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one that you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanying him. And, to, and, Caesar, and on, the, on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate or visit anyone of any other nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked why you sent me, for now I ask why you sent me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house. And the ninth hour, behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging at the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. For as the word he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through 
through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him, and we are witnesses of all that he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all those who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we see you at work here in Acts. And Father, we believe that you are at work here and now. Open our eyes to see, give us ears to hear the good news of the gospel. We ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. There is a cosmic and divine truth, and that is this, that God is always at work. What we see here in this passage is that God is at work in ways and with people that are both unexpected and yet obvious. We should always expect God to be at work, but the ways in which he does work may not be what we expect or even would desire. So we'll look here at our passage in in three movements, if you will. Divine mission, human reluctance, and then universal good news. Divine mission, human reluctance, and universal good news. One of the things uh, that I think people find surprising when I have conversations about God is is that that God is a, a God of mission, He has a focus. He himself has a purpose. See, God is not reactionary. Uh, One of the attributes of God is his omniscience. God is all-knowing. Time for him is not a factor. Right? He, uh, He works in and through time, but he is above time. Nothing is a surprise to God. So God doesn't have to be reactionary in a way that he sees something happen and goes, oh no, I didn't plan for that. What am I going to do with this? He doesn't, he doesn't act in that way. He knows all things, both past, present, and future. If you will, he, he looks at time almost from above. And so he is not surprised by anything. 
So he is a God of purpose and mission. And we see here God working to accomplish his intended purpose and his mission to, as John 12.32 would tell us, draw all men unto himself so that he would be rightfully glorified and worshipped by all men, which are his creation. And we see this happen here with Cornelius, a centurion. Cornelius was a, a Roman centurion. He was of the Italian cohort, so he, we, we knew he was from Italy. He's uh, from, in essence, Rome. Um, he was a man in charge of the care and oversight of a hundred soldiers. Centurions needed to be level-headed, steady, and unwavering men, one that could both lead well and care for his soldiers. Anyone who has led soldiers before knows what kind of person Cornelius needed to be. We also see here in verse 2 that he was a devout God-fearer. He was not a convert to Judaism, but some commentators would believe the reason for this, the only thing that was really holding him back, was that last step of circumcision. He was unwilling to take that physical step. But we do see here that he is a faithful God-fearer. He's faithful to prayers and to the care of the poor and the needy financially. Nonetheless, he was, by all qualifications and perspectives, still a Gentile, meaning that he was not Jewish. There's Jew and then there's everyone else who would be qualified as Gentile. He was, set, uh, he was stationed in, in Caesarea Maritima, um, which is also known as Caesarea by the Sea. Uh, Caesarea by the Sea was uh, built by Herod the Great on the Mediterranean Sea and, and dedicated to Caesar Augustus. It was the headquarters of Pontius Pilate. From here, Pontius Pilate would actually set out to go to the Passover festivals in Jerusalem where he would sentence Jesus to death. It was also home to one of the first deacons, Philip, and we will see this city come up more and more throughout our time in Acts. And even after that, after Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, Caesarea became the center of Christianity in Palestine. A church council here uh, was actually held in AD 195 that determined that Easter should be celebrated on a Sunday. So this is a, this is a pretty significant city. A city was also an, an incredible engineering marvel. Uh, it had no natural harbor to it, but Herod the Great and his many um, uh, engineering marvels throughout the, the Middle East uh, constructed a harbor in the sea. All right? um, and, and it would be uh, the largest and most beautiful harbor ever to exist in the ancient world. I had a chance to, to see Caesarea when we were in Israel, and it is a, is, an, is a remarkable place. That harbor still exists today, and he built this harbor in a matter of seven years. We can't fix our roads in seven years. He builds a harbor. I could go on about Caesarea, but the, the point here is that Cornelius was stationed in this city, and this city had some, some great significance in the region. And so Cornelius himself had some great significance to be stationed here. And here we see an angel of God speak to Cornelius to tell him, as we see here in verse 4, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. 
this is a beautiful picture, friends, of what your prayers and your good works do. It's a, it's a peek behind the curtain when we see someone as an angel come and tell uh, humanity what is happening, how God is seeing and perceiving things. It's, it's really an incredible thing. We get a, a glimpse into heaven. Let's be reminded then that our actions, our prayers, our giving are not arbitrary acts. It does not go unnoticed by God. That when you pray, when you give, when you serve, it goes up before God as, as an incense, the, the smoke of a sacrifice. It is a sweet smell to the creator of the universe. Think about that. I don't, I've never really pictured that before. The ways in which our actions and our prayers go before God. And as Ephesians 2 would go on to tell us, that as we walk in love, it goes up as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Cornelius' actions went before God, and God is now stepping in and responding to his actions and his prayers, and which would bring him, honestly, the most incredible gift to Cornelius. He tells him to send men down to Joppa to bring back Peter, one Simon who is known as Peter. Note that he doesn't tell, he doesn't tell Cornelius what Peter will say to him. He doesn't give him uh, an idea or an inclination of what's going to happen, but to go and to receive him. And he sends two servants. He also sends one of uh, another d- devout soldier, possibly even someone that he uh, was that was under Cornelius's care, or even was potentially even a disciple of Cornelius, and so they go. And here in verse nine, as they're getting near Joppa, at this time we see Peter going to the rooftop to pray. And Peter's actions here to pray at the sixth hour at noon would put him in kind of a category of a, of a pietistic Jew. All right, there were two times of the day that the Jews were supposed to go and pray, nine in the morning and three in the afternoon. And Peter is taking extra time here at noon. This is something that we saw uh, Daniel in the Old Testament. Uh, if you know Daniel, the story of Daniel and the lion's den, Daniel was, was a pious individual. He would, he would do whatever he could to, to take his time and to spend it with God. So he would, in essence, take his lunch break, and he would go and stay before a window and pray. And so Peter here is also going up to the rooftop at noon to pray. And he's caught up in a trance, and he's been given a vision by God. You see, Christ is, is at work here here and in Peter's life, and he's even using Peter's hunger. He's even using Peter's hunger as a way to communicate to him because he was hungry and he calls down for food and yet uh, he's given this vision by God. This is very much like Jesus to do. He uses um, common things, things and experiences that people would have and he shows us a divine point in the common things. In a way, uh, Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, you're hungry, and so am I. And I'm hungry for you to see what I'm going to do in the world to draw all men to myself, just not like you expected. And so this, uh, as, as we see in verse 12, descending down comes this sheet. 
for Peter to receive a meal. But here, instead of Peter saying, rise to Tabitha, Jesus tells Peter to rise, kill, and eat. Jesus is here telling the very pious Peter to kill and eat something that he had just provided for him. But there was a catch. There was a problem with what God was providing for Peter, right? The animals that he was told to eat, there was something wrong. We see here that there, is, there were many animals on the sheet, but they were not all acceptable. They were not all kosher. They were not all things that Peter uh, is allowed to eat being Jewish. There were certain dietary restrictions that he would have. So there were many animals. What we'd see is, what we think is there, there are many animals on this sheet. So what's the problem? Why can't he just pick out the clean one, kill the clean one, and eat? The, um, the, the theologian and reformer John Calvin, in his commentary on Acts, points out that, that this is problematic because of the proverbial meat buffet, if you will, that, is, that is not just contains a, a variety of different animals, but it is possible that the animals themselves are, are variations of multiple animals in and of themselves. There's a sheet that comes down. How would every animal fit on the sheet? And this is kind of how Calvin was thinking through this. It, it would happen if, if each of these animals were representative of, of a different animal, kind of like if they had the, the body of a, of a cow and the tail of an alligator. We see different animals, reptiles and birds. And this is not a... Um, something that we should balk at. As, as we see even in the book of Revelation, we see uh, animals before the throne of God who had different uh, caricatures of different animals represented in that same body. So Calvin believes this is the case because the point that Jesus is trying to make here with Peter is to show Peter um, from heaven that there is now no distinction between clean and unclean. That there's no distinction. The way God sees everyone now because of the new covenant in Christ is that everyone is unclean unless they are in Christ. And only when they are in Christ, they are clean. This was hard for Peter to understand and accept. He rejects the command to kill and eat. And he rejects that three times. This is not the first time Peter has rejected Jesus three times. Yet Peter would, by the divine working of God, understand in short order what Christ meant through the vision. The Holy Spirit would bring his answer to him in the form of three men who were waiting for him at the door. It's also significant to know that both of these men, Peter and Cornelius, were praying at the time when God spoke to them. They were praying at the time God spoke to him. See, do you believe uh, that God speaks to you in your prayer? Do you believe that when you pray that you are communing with God? That he would speak to you, that he would, uh, maybe not verbally, but he would remind you, you know, this is the first time where Cornelius, through his entire life, saw an angel when he prayed. This was the exception, if you will, to the rule. But Cornelius would be consistently going to God in prayer. We also see here that um, Peter did not see an angel. We see that the Holy Spirit spoke to Peter. And so when we pray, uh, are, we, are we communing with God in a way? Much of the account here in Acts chapter 10 is not about Cornelius as much as it is about Peter. 
As much as Cornelius is a main character, God's plan to graft the Gentiles into the family of God hinges on Peter's own growth and sanctification. Peter was reluctant to see this and accept this. Even as he is given a vision by God, he wrestles with its implications. So let's look next at human reluctance. Human reluctance. We see Peter's reluctance here even in verse 14 where he counters the command to rise, kill, and eat. But he doesn't stop there. Peter's own piety and and Jewish conditioning made it hard for him to accept that God would want him to partake in the eating of an unclean animal. This was not obvious to Peter. Look with me now in verse 17. While Peter was inwardly perplexed, as to what the vision might mean. It left him perplexed. Perplexed by what he knew to be right through the teachings uh, in the Old Testament about the dietary laws. But he was now being taught by the very voice of his Savior and Lord Jesus to kill and eat. Peter was wrestling deeply with an understanding of what the plan of God was. It's also uh, maybe ironic that this vision came to Peter while he was in Joppa. Joppa was also where we see Jonah boarding a ship that was supposed to take him to Nineveh. He was supposed to go to Nineveh, but he boarded a ship to go away from Nineveh. We see the reluctant, another reluctant follower of God who was reluctant to take the good news to the Gentiles. Yet, unlike Jonah, Peter did not run He did not get on a boat and try to go the opposite direction. There's no giant fish in this story. He went to Caesarea with the men Cornelius sent. It was never unlawful for a Gentile to come to the Jewish faith as a convert. Yet what we see here is that Cornelius was not a convert. Uh, He was, even as a God-fearer, he was very much a Gentile. And the hostility that exists between Jews and Gentiles here in this time was still very much present. To the point where we see here in verse 28, if you look at verse 28, that Peter's uh, first words to this group of Gentiles was, hey, you know this is unlawful for me to do as a Jew, to associate or to visit anyone from another nation. That's That's a heck of an introduction to a group of people. And yet we see here with Peter first dining with those who came to Simon the Tanner's house and now coming to the house of Cornelius, Peter's introductory words set the stage for this awkward interaction. He made it clear that this is not something that he was enjoying or thinks that he maybe should do. But he's being obedient to Christ. And he's come to answer whatever it was that God had led him to. You see, it had to be Peter. Peter had to be the one who was coming to Cornelius' house. Peter had to be one to, if you will, unlock the door for the Gentiles. As the one who was the figurehead of the early church, we can assume that he would have probably raised more objections of this happening if it were Philip or Paul or any one of the other disciples. God is using Peter and his own influence to show the church what has to happen, what has to happen, how the Gentiles must be um, 
able to receive the Holy Spirit, to become a part of the covenant family of God. And we will continue to see the church struggle with this at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. There's a lot more here than just stigmas and religious preferences. It's these men wrestling deeply with the word of God. And it is right and good, friends, for us to wrestle through our own doubts and fears. Christianity is not without its challenges. Many of you have expressed your own wrestlings with Christianity and how it impacts your own relationships and your own presence in this world. We need to wrestle with the truth claims of Scripture. We need to do that, though, together. It's not helpful or healthy to do that in isolation or on your own or doing that in silence. But may you wrestle with with the gospel and who it's for. May this passage even give you clarity on the fact that the gospel is for all people, regardless of where they are in life, what they believe, what they've gone through, or even what they're currently struggling with. Maybe you wrestle with the fact that God truly loves you, that you are worthy of God's love and affection because of Jesus. May this passage show you that God hears your prayers, that he has made a way for you through Jesus Christ. Peter's message for these Gentiles captures our hope. It captures our hope. And even as we wrestle... It shows us that, that this hope is a universal good news. And so finally, a universal good news. God's mission is that people would hear the words of the gospel. Look with me in verse 34. The sermon of Peter's. So Peter opens his mouth and he says, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. This is a big moment for Peter. No partiality. Peter is partial. But he's saying that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. For the word that he sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. Jesus brings us peace, both between each other, between individuals, But maybe in the most significance between God and man, he brings us peace. Because he is Lord of all. And that's a big statement even for Peter in this moment. You yourselves know what happened throughout Judea. You've heard of these things. Jump down to 38. And how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him, and we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. These people would be familiar with the fact that, uh, uh, with the passage where it says, that cursed is, is anyone who hangs on the tree. That Jesus was cursed for us. But God raised him on the third day. A cursed man is not raised, but God raised him 
on the third day and made him appear not to all people, but to those of us who've been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. He is over all. To him, all the prophets, everything Cornelius and your family and your friends have learned about God. Right? All the prophets bear witness. Everyone who believes and receives forgiveness of sin through his name. And this is the hope. This is our message. This is what we proclaim as God's people. This is God's mission. And it is truly good news. While Peter was speaking, the Holy Spirit descends on all of those Gentiles who heard these words. This is the Gentile Pentecost. The uncircumcised Gentiles received the very same Holy Spirit that the apostles and the disciples received at Pentecost. This was an amazement to the disciples who were there, Peter and his friends from Joppa. But it was, it was an amazement for them because these men had not yet done everything that the law had required. And yet, the Holy Spirit, the gift of God, the presence of God was given to them. All they did was believe. And God showed no partiality. This is why the gospel is good news for all people. Because it is not what we have done. It is not our ability to keep the law. But it is Christ's righteousness given to us imputed, given to you, placed upon you because of the work of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection, which we celebrated last week and we celebrate now. This is good news for us. It is good news for our children. It is good news for our coworkers. It is good news for our neighbors. It is good news for all that would hear it. And as Peter and the disciples were amazed, they saw the mission of God expand, even unto the Gentiles. But Peter's own reluctance, his own personal struggle would not end there. No, in fact, um, we would read later in Scripture that, that he would even start to show partiality to the Jews over the Gentiles. His struggle may not go away. Our struggles may not go away. Pray that they do. Work to the fact that they would go away. But the mission of God will continue. And what we see here on later in Acts and throughout the New Testament is that God would continue to do work amongst the Gentiles. But it wasn't Peter that would be the one taking this message to the Gentiles. No, in fact, it would, he would raise up another for that mission, a man named Paul. See, God will always be on mission, and his mission does not stop. He will be on mission to accomplish his purpose here on the earth, even amongst human reluctance, because the good news of the gospel is good news for everyone that would receive it.
And it's because of the resurrection, all things are possible. Even Gentiles being saved. Even you and I being saved. And that is good news for us and is good news for everyone who hears. Let's pray. Father, you, um, you are at work even here and now in our hearts and lives. Father, would you prune our own reluctance in our hearts? Would you fight against our fears, our own presuppositions? Father, fight for us when we cannot even fight for ourselves. Do your work here amongst us, God. May we have open hands to join you in it. We ask this in the name of the resurrected Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.